Bandwidth for Changelog is provided by Fastly. Learn more at Fastly.com. And we're hosted on Linode servers. Head to Linode.com changelog. This episode is brought to you by CircleCI. CircleCI is how leading engineering teams deliver value faster by automating the software development process using continuous integration and continuous delivery. You are free to focus on what matters most, which is building value for your customers. CircleCI allows you to build faster, test more, and fail less. Get started with their free plan, which gives you unlimited projects and 1,500 bills per month, which is plenty to get started with. Head to circleci.com slash changelawpodcast. And by Linode. Linode is our cloud server of choice, and everything we do here at ChangeLog is hosted on Linode servers. Pick a plan, pick a distro, and pick a location, and in seconds, deploy your virtual server, drawworthy hardware, SSD cloud storage, 40 gigabit network, Intel E5 processors, simple, easy control panel, 99.9% uptime guaranteed, 24-7 customer support, nine data centers, three regions, anywhere in the world they've got you covered, Hit the linode.com slash changelog and get $20 in hosting credit. You're listening to the Changelog, a podcast featuring the hackers, leaders, and innovators of open source. I'm Adam Stachowiak, Editor-in-Chief of Changelog. On today's show, we're talking with Dan Kahn, the Executive Director of the Cloud Native Computing Foundation, which is part of the Linux Foundation. We talked about what it means to be cloud native, the ins and outs of Dan's role, how they make money to sustain things, membership, the support they give to open source projects, the home they've given to Kubernetes, Prometheus, and many other projects that have become the de facto projects to build cloud native applications on. And by the way, I'll be at the upcoming KubeCon and CloudNativeCon, so if you're gonna be there, look out for a changelog T and say hi. Then we have you here and Jared and I, we've been wondering this ourselves. We've heard it quite a bit. I'm sure that many of our listeners have heard this term cloud native. And I kind of think I know what it means. It seems like it em- encompasses lots of stuff and sort of says, this is what we're talking about. Can you kind of break down what you think cloud native means? Oh, certainly. So the Cloud Native Computing Foundation, we think of it as having three parts. The first is that you break up your application into different pieces, which we call microservices. The second is that you containerize each of those different parts of your application, put them each in their own container. And then the third is that you use an orchestration platform like Kubernetes in order to uh, keep all those containers working together. So it's those three parts, microservice, container, orchestration. Those three things right. require cloud native is what makes up cloud native. That's how we think of it. But we, we do see it as a, a journey where uh, very few companies are actually a fully 100% cloud native or, or it's a destination and there's, there's many different ways of getting there, many different combinations of software. And how long have you been involved with the Linux Foundation? Has it just been since you've been the executive director of CNCF or do you have some history? I do. This is actually my second go around. And uh, I was the chief operating officer a decade ago when the Linux Foundation was just this tiny little um, organization. In fact, uh, I helped merge together the two predecessor organizations with Jim Zemlin, uh, Free Standards Group and the Open Source Development Labs. And back then, 
the entire budget of, for the Linux Foundation was smaller than CNCF's today. And we definitely had a just open source was less clear. You know, Sun was the big competition with Solaris and, and, and Windows was still completely dominant um, on the on the OS side. You didn't have billions of of uh, Linux and, and devices out there with Android. And so um, I was there for uh, several years, four or five years, and then left and was CTO of a couple startups here in New York. And uh, when I left my last one, I've, I've kept in touch with uh, the Linux Foundation along the way and looked at this opportunity to come back and, and take over as executive director of CNCF. So what was the... You know, considering that history, what was the early days of of forming this like? What, what was the what was the motive? What was some of the early pain points to make this something the Linux Foundation wanted to do? Linux Foundation people miss the fact that it's doing way more than just Linux today. It's right. really a foundation of foundations. And um, you've probably heard of a few of the other groups, things like Node.js mm-hmm. is in the Linux Foundation. And then um, another one that's just insanely exciting is Let's Encrypt, which mm-hmm. uh, just this week showed that they're now providing more than certificates for more than 35% of the web. And, and you know, they offer free um, HTTPS certificates. Definitely one of my favorite things that have happened over the the last few years is Let's Encrypt. I think it's one of the best things that's happened to the web recently. Yeah. Oh, I totally agree. And, and you know, once you look at it, it just makes so much sense to have this as a free shared resource. But I, I will point out that although the Linux Foundation provides the administration for it and, you know, the healthcare plan and, and provides the audited financials and everything, the, the funding is actually contributed by big companies like uh, Microsoft and Google and others and lots of individual donors. And so if you support having a secure web, um, please consider contributing to Let's Encrypt. It's just a absolutely fantastic organization. I think part of our conversation we want to have with you is is one background on the Cloud Native Computing Foundation, the role of the Linux Foundation, and how you said it's a foundation of foundations. It's not just Linux anymore. Uh, Node, Let's Encrypt, and others as you mentioned. But I think the other side is like you know what is the role of a foundation? You know, like I think a lot of open source as it uh, becomes to more be more popularized, or a project goes and gets really exciting like Prometheus or Kubernetes, those kinds of projects, they really need some sort of like larger support. So can you help us kind of start to break down what it is, what the role of a foundation is to not only the the technologies, but the, the communities and the code and all the things that are involved in running a successful, large mainstream or even maybe a mid-sized mainstream project? Really, you know, one of the biggest changes in the roles of open source software foundations is the emergence and and ubiquity of GitHub. Because it it used to be the case 20 years ago that for a foundation to be able to provide uh, source code hosting and a website and a mailing list was just immensely valuable. And so sort of any project needed that or, or wanted that in order to be real and just be able to function. But uh, today, everybody gets those things for free from GitHub and, and you know, other similar services, GitLab, et cetera. And so now for the, an open source foundation actually has to provide some additional value on top of that in order for it to make sense. So going back to that, that history, um, the Cloud Native Computing Foundation really began with uh, Google having created this internal software, Kubernetes, which they developed based on the 15 years of experience uh, they had running containers on their system called Borg. So Kubernetes was built on that. 
uh, factored in a lot of that learning. And then they were successful in, in getting companies like IBM and Red Hat and Huawei and others to engage with them and, and start contributing to it and, and becoming maintainers on it. And they said, okay, for this software to really reach its potential, uh, we think contributing it to an open source software foundation would help uh, make it more successful, that it would be a way of, um, of uh, ensuring neutrality. Hmm. That's an interesting point is the neutral point, Jerry. We didn't quite consider Maybe we did, maybe we didn't, but being neutral, you know, mm-hmm. having no sides. Definitely. And, and what I think is, is interesting about it is if you go back in time to like early 2015, Kubernetes was already incredibly cool technology and, and did a lot of very useful stuff. Obviously it was new, but at that moment, Google kind of had four choices in front of them. They could have kept it closed source proprietary, which is kind of like um, Amazon's elastic container service and said, okay, you have to be a, a Google cloud customer in order to use it. Uh, number two, they could have open sourced it, but maintained the Google control. And, you know, that's what they've done with Golang and um, both Kubernetes and Docker and a lot of other software is written in Go. People mm-hmm. think it's a fantastic language. They trust Rob Pike's architecture and, you know, judgment on how he maintains it. And so the fact that it's it's a, as a project is controlled by Google, I don't think has really diminished its adoption all that much. Um, and then the third sort of more open option is they could have come to the Linux Foundation and said, well, we'd like to create a Kubernetes foundation and have a new home for this. And, you know, with Red Hat and these other companies on board, uh, the Linux Foundation likely would have said, yes, uh, sure, we can create a home for the Kubernetes foundation. But interestingly, uh, Google decided that they'd like to go the most open route, which is to have an open source foundation that certainly could be a good home for Kubernetes. And and the idea was always that Kubernetes would be the anchor tenant of of CNCF. But Hmm. it was explicitly named the Cloud Native Computing Foundation to be able to offer a lot of additional software. And, and really support a whole ecosystem of software. And then also to make it easier to bring um, potential competitors or, you, you know, if you don't mind that word, coopetition. Uh, but companies like Mesosphere mm, that was promoting Mesos and, and Docker that was promoting Docker Swarm and ideally some of the, the public clouds in as well. So that's interesting. Why do you think Google, Google went that route? Um, if you, especially if you were involved in those initial conversations. And then, like you said, with, with Go, it hasn't really held it back necessarily. Um, but with something like Kubernetes, uh, do you think that, you know, that the route they took with Go, which is to keep it open source, but internally directed, would that have held back Kubernetes, you know, in retrospect? What are your thoughts on that? Yeah, and I, I wasn't there then, and this is this is actually somewhat of a stylized history because in reality, when, when they created Kubernetes, they were planning on having it be open source right. uh, from the get go. They had—I don't th- think they decided exactly what they were going to do with it, but they never, I don't believe, seriously considered a closed source uh, Kubernetes like an like an Amazon ECS. But I, I think the reason is they said, look, this is infrastructure software and 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 a platform. And there's this metaphor that's, that I think is gaining currency now, which is that in a lot of ways, Kubernetes is the Linux of the cloud. Hmm. And kind of like Linux, it, it just would never be able to be remotely as successful if it 
were all controlled by one company, even if that company were seen as, you know, very positive and, and generally um, open and supportive and such. And so they, they made this decision. But to be blunt, it, it, the, the first, oh, I'll say year or so of CNCF was kind of tough going where um, we we have this relatively complicated structure of how we're set up. And, and it was created for very good reasons where the the fear was that they didn't want to create an organization where the people providing the most money would get to determine the technology decisions. Uh, they wanted to have some independence around the technology and the architecture. And so the these original founding companies, when they wrote the charter, they created this separate group called the Technical Oversight Committee, or TOC. And that's a mm-hmm. group of nine top technical architects, folks like Brian Cantrell of Joyant and Brian Grant of Google and Solomon Hikes of Docker, who have to jointly, and it actually requires a two-thirds majority, agree in order for any new project to come in. Mm, that's interesting because I want to talk about that architecture a little bit because from the outside looking at it, even if you look at like you go to cncf.io and you look at the platinum members and you see AWS and CoreOS and Google and Docker and all these these large corporations, and then you see some of like the the membership fees that they're paying, which for the for the platinum is like three hundred and seventy thousand a year, and you just there's this error, there's like this aura of this is a pay to play type of a situation. And it's so interesting that like the, the, the architecture, the structure y'all put in place is was specifically to fight against that happening. Is that what you're saying? Oh, it definitely is. And my favorite counterexample on it is uh, Open Tracing, which was the third project in CNCF and was created by largely by a guy named Ben Siegelman, who has a, a startup called Lightstep. And so he proposed Open Tracing to CNCF over a year ago now, like 14 months or something. And it went through the whole process and got accepted to this TOC and has been maturing and growing since then. And through that whole period, uh, Lightstep never had gotten around to becoming a member of CNCF. And so I'm, I, I think it's really a great mm-hmm. example of how we've separated the technology decisions of what projects make sense in the cloud native landscape that we want to host and, and, and promote and the membership decisions, which is what provides the funding and, and some of the marketing behind what we do. Right. So go back to that first year then and, and describe the difficulties you had because of the, the structuring of this technical oversight. Well, all I'd say is that when you create a complicated structure, it it, it definitely takes time to work out the kinks. And so when I arrived uh, 18 months ago, we had just gotten Kubernetes in. We were almost ready to bring in our second project, Prometheus. But we just had a lot of kind of um, concern of, oh, well, is this project not supporting Kubernetes enough? Is it it, um, too, is it? Is it such a big tent that it sort of doesn't mean anything? Does it, um, there was just a a lot of uh, anxiety about exactly what our mission was, the strategy, what kind of projects should be coming in. And and I, you know, it would be the sort of heroic narrative to go back and say, oh, and I I came in and I just magically (laughs) put together this strategy (laughs) document and everyone agreed. But as with most things, there's just a ton of chatting with people and just kind of talking things through. And and there were definitely a few course corrections along the way. 
Um, but what was really great is over time we were able to bring in more projects. And then, um, I mean, I think there's a really interesting story with Prometheus, for example, where, um, after they had been in for a year, we were just able to show that they had, that it helped build so much momentum behind them. And now, I mean, I'll point out that Prometheus already had a great following even before it came into CNCF. And in particular, it's not tied to Kubernetes. It works great with Docker Swarm and Mesos and Nomad and uh, virtual machines and all kinds of other infrastructure. But it, it's a particularly good fit with, with Kubernetes. People who use Kubernetes find Prometheus adds a ton of value. And so we were able to sort of demonstrate that uh, there's a lot of value by connecting these projects together and, and, and helping to market and, and promote them together. So, Dan, what is it that um, excited you, you know, back when you got involved with this that brought you back to the Linux Foundation and kind of gets you out of bed in the morning, um, especially now that the structure is put in place? Like, what is it about your work at CNCF running the, 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 the operation? And maybe you can even describe, you know, what exactly your role is. I don't think we've quite laid that out. Um, but like what drives you to do this personally? Sure. So, uh, you know, my last two um, startups that I was in over the, the previous five years, uh, one was a, a shoppable ads company and another one was a, a healthcare startup focused around higher quality MRIs. And both of them were incredibly stimulating in, the own way, in their own ways. And, and it was also a ton of fun for me to get Reimmersed in programming and and actually um, become a, a a pretty decent Node.js developer. Although, you know, jo the JavaScript world moves so fast that I feel like three years later, all of my skills there are, are now obsolete. Mm -hmm. And then um, with the second startup to to go into to Ruby and Rails right. as well. But there was also a sense which the the startup job or the, the even the CTO role um, is very narrow. I, I mean, I just a, a huge amount of my my day was focused on on GitHub um, uh, code reviews and and Kanban boards and 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 even mm. coding myself. <laughs> and so um, I, I feel like that background though was incredibly helpful because it, it did and does give me just an enormous amount of respect for developers. Uh, both the contributors to our open source projects, uh, like the ones that we host, and also then um, all of the developers at and user companies that are building their applications on top of this cloud native ecosystem and, and relying on this this infrastructure software in order to make their job easier. And so, I, I mean, I'd, I'd say the, the part that's just a huge amount of fun for me and, and really is incredibly, on an ongoing basis, just very stimulating and rewarding and, 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 uh, and exciting is getting to work with all of those developers and, and um, ideally, when things are going well, helping to make their lives easier, helping to you know uh, move these projects forward. Uh, I mean, there's just an unbelievable level of excitement around the technologies that we're hosting right now. And so getting to be a part of that and, and hopefully in a small way, um, helping to make these projects succeed is uh, is very rewarding. Mm. When, I, when I think about a position of executive director of a foundation, I think about a lot of meetings, a lot of you know conversations, a lot of relationship building events. I don't think of... Uh, any of the stuff that you used to do, you know, with regard to the coding, the Kanban boards, all the stuff that was very technical and eventually, um, you know, you can grow tired of over time, but I, I can't help but 
laugh a little bit. We were talking before we started recording that you, you know, you have the number one story on Hacker News this morning or this afternoon. <laughs> Not that you didn't write it, but you posted it about replacing the x86 firmware with Linux and Go. So you still nerd out. Like you're still, you're still in, oh, interested in technical things. Yeah. But it's, it's a pretty great job when I can actually say, hey, I can justify spending 20 minutes a day or, or half an hour a day on Hacker News. And, mm-hmm. and uh, just keeping yeah. up on this stuff is sort of an expected part of what I do. Um, but I, I mean, I don't think if I were, I think if I were, were less geeky that, that, that I'd be far less effective at the job. So comparing your, I guess, previous path, which was entrepreneurship, CTO, um, you know, what is, what is different about what you do now in comparison to say building a business or, you know, the, the role of an entrepreneur and kind of break down some of the things you might do day to day to kind of demystify what an executive director is. So the, the biggest difference by far is that uh, in this job, I get no stock options. Uh, the <laughs> Linux Foundation is a, uh, a not-for-profit, um, and so um, you, you don't get the kind of lottery ticket or, or potential upside that you have in, uh, in a startup. Um, but other than that, I, I think it, the, the job is extremely entrepreneurial in, in a lot of ways. And so um, I, I do consider my job to be about – um, messaging about communication, about providing a set of services and tools um, to our projects and, and um, to our members, and so um, a ton of it is just um, chatting with folks. So I I'll, I'll make a little plug for a, a, a SaaS service I use called Calendly, and um, I just. Uh, spend a ton of time sending out my little Calendly link and saying, hey, if you'd like to chat about this, please book a time with me and people can book 15 or 30 or 60 minutes. And I just spend a lot of time hearing about our members who have a new project that they might like to promote or uh, some event coming up or some issue or some concern or why they're unhappy with this other company or this other project. And to the degree possible, there's just a, a ton of kind of herding cats or um, looking for themes or, or or looking for opportunities to connect people together. And then um, I, I do go to a lot of events around the world and I speak at, at a good number of those, but I also just find it immensely useful to just sit in the hallway and, uh, you know, sort of happily now after 18 months, I've, I've met enough people that, that folks will generally come up to me and say, oh, you know, I, I saw your post on Hacker News or I saw your talk earlier or something. I have this idea or, or I'm concerned about this issue. And, and again, I just feel like there's um, the in, in the big company, there's a term for it, which is uh, management by walking around. Mm-hmm. And, and it tends to be a, a key role for kind of a mid-level person. And uh, I, I feel like I'm, I'm trying to do the same sort of thing, but, but maybe it's uh, by flying around. But I, I do want to emphasize that I, I'm not literally in charge of these projects. I mean, the right. when um, one of the semi-unusual things about CNCF is we have uh, what we informally call a, a bring-your-own-governance process, where um, we we do require that any projects, when they come in, that they be, have a, a neutrality, that they can't all be biased towards one company or exclude their competitors or, or other sorts of things. But we don't say, oh, you must 
use this exact governance process. We're, we're very open to different projects trying different things, and and then we you know ask them to eventually to document that and and to to make sure that they're living up to it. And so uh, our our philosophy on that front is much more about how do we provide services to the projects and help them succeed than to to ever say oh you need to be doing X or or not doing Y. This episode is brought to you by GitLab and their Global Developer Survey for 2018. They're doing the survey to inform the larger population of developers all across the world about the needs of modern developers, their current satisfaction with management, tooling, workflows, trends at work, and more, perception discrepancies between developers and management, and most importantly, what high-functioning development organizations are doing differently. Their 2016 survey uncovered that developers have a lot more say in choosing the tools they use, and often they were using tools their managers weren't even aware of. And this survey we're asking you to take was vetted by 10 internal GitLab engineers to ensure it's high quality and highly relevant to developers. Topics in the survey include developer satisfaction, open source technology, workflow and collaboration, CI, CD practices, and developer tooling and their preferences. If you have insights to share, we'd love for you to inform the global developer community and please consider taking the survey. The entire survey includes around 25 required questions and a handful of completely optional questions for you to share a short answer with more details. The survey takes around 15 minutes on average to complete and you can find it at about.gitlab.com slash developer dash survey. Once again, about.gitlab.com slash developer dash survey or check the show notes for a link. And you mentioned with the the rise of GitHub as a shared platform that a lot of the a lot of the services and the offerings that foundations used to offer aren't necessarily needed anymore, but there's still a lot that people need. And there's a lot of reasons why projects want to be part of the CNCF. So can you lay out the benefits and the services provided by by the foundation? Absolutely. And I'd say by far the first one uh, is the most important, and that's just that a neutral home increases contributions. And so there's tons of absolutely fantastic projects out there uh, that are on GitHub, but obviously controlled by one company. But when big companies want to make a bet as to what platform to invest in and to build on top of. And for thing, infrastructure software like Kubernetes and Cloud Native, it's often a decade-long bet. Th- they would uh, love to know that there's multiple companies backing it and backing it in a big way. And that if if one company gets acquired or changes direction or anything else, that that software is not going to atrophy. And so then other kinds of, of advantages are the fact that coming into CNCF implies an endorsement by our technical oversight committee we have these um, end user and service provider communities that that it, we we provide engagement with. So you have a sort of very thoughtful, knowledgeable group of end users and consultants who could give you some insight or complain about things they're having uh, that are happening. 
uh, we have full-time press and analyst relations teams. And then, you know, definitely an advantage is just the fact that we do have some cash available that, that we're very interested in investing in these projects. And so we're doing some things like um, a security audit of Envoy or um, investing in documentation around Rocket or just even small things like they don't like their logo and or j- just sort of keeping uh, all of that material and things like running a, um, a, a robot that maintains a contributor license agreement. So, you know, overall, I just say that we have a full-time staff that mm-hmm. is eager to assist these projects. And so the maintainers tend to be extremely busy people. It's not the case that they're just emailing us 20 times a day asking for random things, but we do sort of have a set of services that we're, we provide and, and it's not in any way complete. I mean, comprehensive. If there's other things that projects want help with. So some of our projects have just asked for advice on, on things like governance or, or legal issues or trademark or, or yeah. others that, that were there to help them out. It sounds yeah. like you're some of the core reasons of foundation is in place for projects like this is to essentially run the business part of the project and to allow, you know, the TOC or maintainers or the onboarders or any, any new contributors in the community to, to thrive in the tech part of it, but to sort of give or hand over a lot of the, you know, the day-to-day business operations and stuff, yeah, like logos (laughs) and, you know, marketing and branding Right. The distinction's a little subtler than that because when you look at something like Kubernetes, there's um, over 50 different companies mm-hmm. that are building software products on top of Kubernetes, offering commercial Kubernetes distributions. And so they're definitely not interested in us, quote, handling the business or running that for them or competing with them in any way. But there's just um, some neutrality, some administrative tasks that all of them have agreed, yes, it would be nice if there were a neutral nonprofit foundation that could handle this stuff for us, as opposed to the kind of straight commercial support or, or marketing or such that each of these businesses do. Yeah, yeah. I think administration, yeah, it makes a lot of sense in ter- as opposed to the business side, but the the operations and the administration, um, yeah. a lot of the, just the infrastructural support. One thing you mentioned is that there's cash available for certain things, such as paying for a security audit, um, you know, logos, maybe swag, maybe there's travel in there. I don't know, but have you guys considered, and is there anybody who's ever used, you know, cash from a project to directly pay for labor? We um, do have a philosophy that we're generally trying to avoid hiring developers. And, and the reason for that is that all of our members tend to be the ones employing developers to um, improve these projects. And we'd like to not be in competition with our members over the hiring. Um, I, I guess we sort of recently made an exception to that where we hired on this guy, uh, Zach Corlison, who is um, helping to manage the documentation work for Kubernetes. Mm-hmm. And there's a ton of great documentation efforts that have been contributed, particularly by Google, who's who supplied the two kind of leaders in, of the special interest group. And, and we now have contributions from other companies, um, Huawei, Dell, Red Hat, and IBM have all stepped in and and offered um, one full-time documentation person because it's just seen as one of the kind of um, deficits right now in Kubernetes or areas that need investment. But we made the judgment that that bringing Zach on 
to help coordinate all of those efforts was going to be pretty valuable. Yeah, you know, like it makes a lot of sense. And the, the projects that um, pass, I don't know what you call it, the certification, or maybe we can talk about next how a project becomes supported. Um, I know you, at the very beginning, laid out what makes a cloud-native application, microservices, containerization, and orchestration. But mm-hmm. um, maybe you can lay out like what a particular project goes through in order to become you know, on the list of supported projects um, to give people an idea of like what is a good fit and what is not. Uh, sure. So uh, we have this technical oversight committee and they have two public calls every week and uh, every month. And um, I definitely encourage your listeners to participate in the calls. Um, I'll, I'll give you the the URL for it. And it's just two hours out of the month. That's a good way of, of kind of hearing what's happening in our community and opportunities for getting involved. And on each of those calls, we tend to have one or two new projects that comes along and, and would like to give uh, like a 12 or 15 minute presentation on what they're doing, how they fit into the cloud native landscape, you know, what they compete with, what they are alternatives to, and then they get a few minutes of questions. Uh, and then if there's interest from our technical oversight committee, we'll do a, a formal application process where we um, put together a bunch of documentation about the project, the libraries it depends on, its backing, you know, um, its responsiveness and, 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 and such. And then we have a group of um, what we call TOC contributors who assist with that due diligence. And in a lot of cases, they're from companies that have worked with these projects before or can say, oh, you know, we've had a great experience with it. We, we definitely endorse that or we've had real issues or we don't think it's mature enough yet. Uh, and then eventually it, it, uh, if it gets that far, it'll go up for a vote and it requires uh, six votes from the TOC in order for a project to come in. Are there any projects that are single maintainer or even a couple of maintainer that are uh, member? Is your language? I know member or hosted projects that are hosted projects or are foundations generally more of a fit for projects with larger teams? You know, multiple companies investing into them. I think my answer is that some of our projects started as single project, single maintainer project. So the, in particular, uh, open tracing that I mentioned earlier, mm-hmm. I believe at the very beginning, it was only Ben Siegelman. I think by the time it came in to CNCF, there was, uh, there were already other maintainers on board. The, the expectation is we really wouldn't want to have a, a single maintainer project for very long. I mean, if it was sort of someone who came in and they said, hey, I think this is immensely valuable. I've had trouble finding other maintainers who are active enough and knowledgeable enough. Maybe that's something we could help them with. But but we definitely wouldn't see that. You know, one of the factors for projects is that you talk about a bus factor of uh, right. what happens if, if, if someone gets hit by a bus. And so that's something definitely we would like to look at on projects that we host. I think that's something that people come to this conversation thinking they're like, you know, if I'm in this cloud native world, how do I determine whether or not there are benefits to joining this kind of foundation? And then I think to myself, like, if I'm that kind of project, what are they giving up? So we can kind of break down the services, quote unquote services you offer and the gains, you know, by joining a foundation, what do people lose out on? What, what What's taken away? 
Oh, I mean, I think it's a great question, and it, it's definitely a conversation I have all the time with with different companies in the space. And the good news is they're not giving up all that much. I mean, in in the big scheme of things, it's certainly not the case of oh, I've contributed my project to CNCF now I don't need to worry about it anymore. You, you have exactly the same issue request uh, queue and pull requests open and everything else the next day. And so, uh, as we said, we're not hiring the developers. We're not managing your project for you. And so for every project that comes to CNCF, our, we have every expectation that uh, all of the existing maintainers, the companies backing, et cetera, will, will continue to do so. I mean, because a big it, part it, of what a foundation does is provide legal governance or sort of legal guidance, right? So in some I ways, mean, I'm sure yeah. someone's signing off on some sort of like uh, power of attorney, you know, like that kind of thing. Like you have a foundation operating on your behalf or something like that. So you've given some sort of legal right to, to an entity to, to care for you. Yeah. I mean, in principle that might be true, but in reality, a lot of our projects. So for example, in September we had, um, Envoy, which is a really exciting service mesh contributed by Lyft. And then coincidentally a Jaeger, which is a, a tracing, a distributed tracing implementation contributed by Uber. But in both of those cases, you know, there's very, established companies behind it who have lawyers who um, can manage all of those processes. And so it's not that our attorneys are are really going to tell the the developers something meaningfully different. I I would also say a, a lot of the heavy lifting on that front comes from the fact that we require all of our projects to use the Apache license. Mm, just and in fact, yeah. yeah, the vast majority of projects in the space are already using the Apache license. And so when a project comes into CNCF, we do require that they transfer the trademark to CNCF, which is mm-hmm. essentially what um, to allow us to ensure that people are using it correctly and, and, and that neutrality. But there's no need to transfer the copyright um, or any patents or anything like that because the Apache license already covers both copyright and patents. So it's really kind of like joining a club. <laughs> there's <laughs> definitely um, an aspect of that. And so, um, but back to your question on downsides, um, you, you know, the, the biggest one is might be on some forms of integrated marketing where we think of ourselves as a very commercially friendly foundation. Um, we're perfectly happy for, in fact, we, we would prefer for our project websites to have a enterprise page or commercial support or such that list all of the um, companies that provide that commercial support. But as an example, um, there's a, a company, uh, Treasure Data, that that uh, was is the main force behind uh, the logging software, FluentD. Um, but uh-huh. it's important. So, so it's fine for them to list themselves and say, hey, if you want commercial support on FluentD, we're happy to provide mm-hmm. that. But it's important that if anyone else wants to provide commercial support, they also need to be uh, able to get a listing on the same page and be treated exactly the same way. And there's some things like, you know, if there's a Slack for the project, it's not okay to do commercial postings on that Slack. Yeah. And so we, we are, there, there's a tiny bit that companies give up or um, in terms of their ability maybe to do some integrated marketing, but I, I would suggest it's, it's really pretty much on the margins. And the trade-off for that is, like you said, it's a club and, and there's a ton of marketing that goes with um, being a CNCF project. And, and I think at least right now, a, a, a kind of um, 
halo effect or um, right. it's been described as a Peloton effect of, of kind of being in a slipstream with, uh, with Kubernetes. And, you know, not that, oh, my project's been accepted by CNCF, so all Kubernetes users are going to adopt it. But just, oh, I'm, my project's in CNCF, so Kubernetes users are probably going to be willing to take a look at it and, and maybe carefully evaluate it. Is participation as a project uh, in this foundation in particular, is it seen as an endorsement? So adding a project or you know bringing on a project to the foundation, is that seen as an endorsement across the board that this is a good thing? Is that, is that exactly what happens? Yeah, I, I would I would say yes to that. That um, we definitely don't want to have any project hosted by CNCF that we don't actively endorse. Right. And and because another side of that endorsement, is, you know, like yeah. when you endorse something, it's it, you're stamping it. And with names like the Linux Foundation and Kubernetes and Google and all the other members that are a part of it, like all the weight of those brands come with that endorsement. Uh, well, I, I won't strictly say that I, I speak for Google, but certainly for the Linux Foundation and CNCF, um, there's an endorsement there. Well, their but involvement, the, the, right? They continue yeah, to be members. Certainly. Okay. Yeah, but I mean, just as an example, uh, GKE, the Google Kubernetes engine, doesn't implement every CNCF project. Right. So the stronger endorsement would be, do they do they actually implement Use it? it? Yeah. Yeah. True. But the, the other side of it is that um, we definitely don't have the philosophy that because a project has come into CNCF that we that we won't consider any other project in that space. And in fact, we've already proven that where Linkerd came in earlier this year as a service mesh technology. And then later in the year, we brought in Envoy. And essentially, those two projects are competitors. Um, I mean, in principle, you could use them both. But in reality, almost everyone is going to pick one or the other. And so that is a key thought, which is that um, we have this uh, thing we call the cloud native landscape, and you can include a, a link to it. And it's, it's a little bit of an overwhelming document with um, 300 or more uh, logos of all these open source projects and, and closed source products. Um, and you can see that, that CNCF has one project in most of the boxes so far. But we don't definitely don't have the philosophy that there can only be one project in a box. Just because we've we've hosted one, we're we're still totally open to other projects coming along and um and if they if they have something else to offer. Hmm. What does growth look like for the foundation in terms of its hosted projects right now? On your projects page, there's 14. You've you've named most of them in this call. Um, but two, three, four, five years from now, is the goal to still have maybe you know two dozen, or are you trying to like, are you trying to get to that 300? What does it look like if things go well? Yeah, I, I would hope we wouldn't stay at 14, and and I definitely hope we don't get to 300. My, my <laughs> right now, I think our our pace has been about one new project per month that has been coming on. There's there's definitely no sort of um, mandate to do that or or demand or, or anything else. And um, I, I guess I, uh, you know, Andrew Morton, the, um, the top kernel developer about seven or eight years ago, made a prediction that uh, the Linux kernel was almost done. And um, I certainly won't make that prediction. I mean, I, I, I think there's always gonna be new projects coming along, new ideas. Um, mm -hmm. I, I, I sort of expect a lot of the innovation to start moving up the stack. 
um, as, as Kubernetes becomes more and more established mm. that I, I think, um, but just because, uh, say, a company has rolled out Kubernetes internally and has had a great experience with it uh, doesn't by any mean, means mean that there's agreement yet on, on things like application definition or the best way to deploy new applications. And, and so I, I still think there's just a ton of innovation in the space uh, going on and that it is in, incredibly fast moving. And then, you know, the other side of thing is that the TUC, um, we hasn't done it to date, but I, I believe there's a very strong willingness to um, kick projects out or to, uh, we might call it something like move them to an attic or something if they <laughs> are no longer being actively developed or if, if technology has moved along to the degree that we can no longer um, actively endorse them. Mm. And so our, our hope is to, again, to be building a, an open source ecosystem or, or landscape that where uh, choosing any of the projects in CNCF represents a smart choice. You know, Jared, it kind of reminds me of some of his backstory, which we haven't shared yet, which is his involvement in the core infrastructure initiative. And the whole reason that was done was to, you know, to kind of battle back Heartbleed. And it seems like what you're sharing here, Dan, is that, you know, you're in place to essentially provide a foundation, for lack of better terms, uh, for a landscape of open source projects that support an ecosystem. You know, that's that seems like it should be, you know, on the nose, but it, it you know, it's taken a little while for me to get that revealed through this conversation. Yeah, I think that is a nice way of, of looking at it. And I'm extremely proud of the, the role that I played about three years ago in combating Heartbleed, where I... Um, I actually was was at one of my startups at the time and had, uh, you know, was still in touch with the Linux Foundation, Jim and everything. And, and my experience was just I had to stay late at work that night and rotate our certificates. And I had a super easy setup with um, very modern. It was on Heroku and it just, mm-hmm. you know, took me. 45 minutes to just look up the documentation and make sure I was doing it correctly and everything. But I, I still came home late that night and my, my wife was a little annoyed with me. And it just hit me that there were literally hundreds of thousands of people around the world who were dealing with exactly the same issue. But essentially all of them had a much worse experience than I did. That you know Things locked in firmware or um, trying to deal with monthly or quarterly releases or where you don't even have the source code or, or all, all sorts of other just, just nightmare situations. And so um, working with Jim, I, I, I put together uh, that plan um, to bring to bring, and we were able to, to bring in 20 companies in, in under three weeks um, to each contribute a hundred K. So it wound up being $6 million over three years. And that uh, really helped improve open SSL. And then we were able to put together a census looking at some other projects that needed help, things like NTPDD. And then um, another part that I'm, I'm very proud of or pleased with is um, the best practices badge which is a project that I worked on very closely with David Wheeler. And I, I can't remember, was he on an earlier version of this podcast? That's right. I was just kind of, I was looking it up as you talked there because you're, you're firing off all sorts of memories for me. I was like, wait a yeah. second. Uh, yeah. So episode 215 of the changelog back in August of 2016, we had David on talking all about the best practices badge <laughs> and the core infrastructure initiative. So for people that want to deep dive that particular tale, David covered it very well. And so I assume you and him uh, know each other quite well. <laughs> yes, uh, that was probably my my <laughs> biggest success being involved in CII was to uh, find David and recruit him in. And and he and I were really the co-developers on that project. I mean, he did um, 
really the the lead on all of the um, what the 66 criteria should be and everything. But at mm-hmm. the time, he actually hadn't done any Rails development before, and I was working for a Rails development company. And so I, I put together the original scaffolding for it and the CI system and then helped along the way on the software development. And again, it's just a, it's an extremely satisfying process to have started that from scratch and then um, have well over a thousand badged projects. And, and in fact, uh, not so coincidentally, one of the criteria in order for a project to graduate within CNCF is they do need to get the best practices badge. Coming back to what Jared said earlier, which was around growth. So you mentioned, you know, at a, a dozen or so projects now, you know, a few years from now, what's the goal? What's growth look like? Essentially, you know, you're, you're aiming growth with the Cloud Native Foundation. And I'm curious how you balance that growth, one, with you know, acquiring new members to to facilitate funding and then two, acquiring new projects to make sure that you have enough staff and enough finances to cover things. And then on the tail end of that, you know, how open are the books of a foundation like this? Yeah, uh, it's a great question. And thankfully, we haven't needed to make um, a lot of trade-offs so far. We've um, been able to be really successful both in bringing in new projects and, and being able to provide them more and more services and uh, correspondingly bringing in uh, a ton of members. Um, and so at least right now, we're really in a, in a positive feedback loop. And that, that is our whole philosophy of how open source ecosystems like ours can grow, that um, you have these projects uh, companies can use them pr- to produce useful products. Those products can throw off profits that can be reinvested back into the projects again. Uh, on the member front, we've we've really had a ton of success in 2017 on bringing in um, o- almost all the big uh, companies in our space. So we now have all six of the biggest public clouds, depending on how you measure, and and most of the big enterprise software companies and and others that that all consider these technologies to really be uh, integral to their their future. Um, we're particularly pleased over the last uh, few months that we were able to bring in Amazon, Oracle, Microsoft, Pivotal, VMware, and SAP as platinum members. Um, and then on the books, um, we're a nonprofit foundation, so we have audited financials and. And you know, we, we work with the Linux Foundation's um, finance team to, to keep pretty clean books. Um, those are all shared with the governing board. Uh, and then this, um, probably February, we're going to be publishing a summary for the first time. So it won't be the, the very detailed uh, what we put every single expense into, mm-hmm. but just how much we're spending on developer tools and what we're spending for events and, and um, you know, third-party events that we go to and our documentation and, and other kinds of things. But that that is also probably a good segue to um, the question of our own events, which has been definitely a big focus for CNCF. And, and we're now just, um, I think, 13 days away from the biggest event we'll ever have run, which is um, KubeCon Cloud Native Con. That's going to be in Austin December uh, 6th through 8th and is not sold out yet, but is um, heading very fast towards selling out mm-hmm. at 4,000 attendees which wow. really is completely insane because we, we had just a thousand people a year ago in Seattle. That's huge. And so it, it really, yeah, 4X is, is a little crazy, but it just speaks to the level of excitement and, uh, and the increasing adoption in this space. Which places so much more weight on the question I just asked around, you know, this growth pattern and balancing it. And 
you know, just to maybe clarify some things here for those listening, like Jared and I come into this call thinking, you know, what's a foundation? What do they, what do they do? And then on the flip side, you got this whole entire, potentially a sales process to say to not so much target, but like to have a strategy with whom out there should be members to be involved in what they should be involved in. And, you know, this whole effort that would go into, you know, creating a strategy and determining who and getting them on board. And then, you know, all that's involved in acquiring new members to fund this foundation. That's a whole different side of things I didn't quite consider. Obviously, it's there because you got to have the money, but, you know, the strategy and the very careful planning it must take to to do it with balance, but then do it, do it ne- neutrally, as it seems like the, the threading of you is is around being neutral. And that gives you a little bit of insight into to probably why my job is hard. Um, <laughs> yes, I, I, yeah. I will point out some of the, the huge assets that, that I have and CNCF has. Um, first of all, we're part of the Linux Foundation. And so we get to rely on um, the Linux Foundation events team, which has been doing these kinds of open source events for more than a decade now. Um, and I actually helped um, hire Angela Brown, um, who runs our events team a decade ago when I in my first go around and, and her team is now I don't know over 30 people but um, what's great about the fact that she does 50 events around the around the world every year and has been doing these events is that um, through most of the year we just kind of have two or three um, people who are focused on CNCF but then as we approach um, Austin right now and then we'll be in Copenhagen uh, May 2nd to 4th of 2018 that team can surge up and, and we're going to have uh, I believe 15 different people uh, working with us in uh, in Austin but one of the um, one of the other big assets uh, we have going for us is just the fact that all of these companies that are backing CNCF are really interested in these events being successful, that it's just a great opportunity for them to inter- interact with end users and developers and get the word out about their products. And so um, we've, uh, it's really pretty amazing to see the growth in sponsorship. We're actually going to have uh, 106 different sponsors for Austin compared wow. to, um, I think it was 25 a year ago. And so again, wow. it, but it, you, you know, if trying to build out a, a 4,000 event from a, a person event from scratch would be uh, almost impossible, but we also do get the, the um, advantage that we're iterating here. And so we do one of mm-hmm. these every six months, one in North America and one in, in Europe. And, and we just try and keep having them get better. And then uh, just the last piece of it is that uh, what, what really makes it feasible for me to, to, to deal with this is that I, I don't actually um, decide on the content for it. I hire uh, or, 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 or bring on two um, co-chairs for, um, for, for our event, and then they bring on a group of volunteers to, to run a program committee. And we have a process where um, lots and lots of people submit. So in this case, I, this year, I believe it was over 800 submissions for 127 selected talks. So it was a 17% approval ra- uh, acceptance rate. But um, they're then able to shape a program, including the keynotes, that um, you know is thematic and covers a wide range but has some neutrality that it's not, for example, the platinum members or, you know, the ones who are funding the most who, who uh, necessarily get to talk. 
This episode is brought to you by our friends at TopTal, the best place to work as a freelancer or hire the top 3% of freelance talent for developers, designers, and finance experts. In this segment, I talk with Jeff Mazur. My name is Jeff Mazur, and I'm a TopTal finance expert. And Jeff has a pretty awesome background for a freelancer. I have a background both in finance and law, and I have um, I actually have a CFA and a, and a JD. I've worked both in finance and as a practicing lawyer for major law firms in New York, Washington, and, and uh, Chicago. So I asked Jeff to share what differentiates TopTal as a global talent network and the process he had to go through to ensure he could be trusted as a finance expert for TopTal. The differentiator I see between TopTal and some of the organizations that are comparable or try to offer a similar type of service is that the people who are part of TopTal have really gone through pretty extensive screens. So in my case, for example, I probably spent 20 hours you know, of preparation and conversation and interviewing um, to make sure that I was the right fit for, uh, for TopTal. So what I offer and what other TopTal finance experts offer is we offer just, just really deep expertise in the areas that, that we talk about. So for example, if you look at you know ICOs, if you just did a Google search or you went into another platform and you look for ICO experts, ICO coordinators, ICO finance experts, you'd come across thousands of people. I mean, given the, the frothiness of the market and the level of interest in the market, you know, everyone's a finance expert right now in, in uh, ICOs. But in, in the case of TopTal, what they've really done is that they winnowed that you know, huge group out to come up with people who really are experts in the field. So if you're looking to freelance or you're looking to gain access to a network of top industry experts in development, design, or finance, head to TopTal.com and tell them Adam from the Change that sent you. That's T-O-P-T-A-L.com. And for those out there wanting a more personal introduction, email me, Adam at ChangeLaw.com. So Dan, looking at your members page, it's quite an impressive list. Um, we were doing some back of the envelope math before the show. I mean, it looks like there's there's easily a hundred companies here. Um, and so the, the question that I have, it makes a lot of sense. The platinum members, like you said, the, the big cloud providers, AWS, uh, Docker, Google, uh, so on Microsoft, why they would have benefits from being members. But when you get down into the, the other companies, the silver members, I start to like miss where the their benefits are like a Capital One or a, a Buoyant or a Bloomberg. And I wonder what the, when you go to these companies and you have these meetings about supporting the CNCF and becoming members, uh, what's the sales pitch to a Capital One? Where, where are their benefits? Sure. And, and the obvious question is to say, well, wait a minute, aren't all of your projects open source? So can I just download them all for free and use them? Why do I need to pay you money? <laughs> exactly. Um, or, you know, what, what doesn't work is, is, is 
to, uh, this is the joke with the Linux Foundation a decade ago, was to say, oh yeah, just come in as a Platinum member and, and we'll, be we'll sh be sure that all of your patches will get approved. And uh, let me just say, I, I am joking there. It's definitely not true. There's no <laughs> sense in okay. which uh, members like, get, any, any kinda <laughs> get any kind Break, of leg up on, on that front. Yes, definitely. Um, <laughs> and, and, you know, people say, oh, well, isn't this just a paid for play organization and so we, we definitely get mm -hmm. that accusation and the sort of obvious answer is well given that anyone can download it for free and that we, we do take in projects from companies that are not members um and from individuals that aren't members that are that's obviously not the case so the the simplest um argument for becoming a member is the marketing one that um a lot of these companies get some benefit by um publicly demonstrating that they're embracing cloud-native computing and supporting cloud-native computing and, and being able to interact with their peers and, and customers and such. Uh, you mentioned Bloomberg and, and um, Capital One. They're part of our end-user community, and that was also one of the real challenges in, in getting set up. When I joined 18 months ago, we had three members in our end-user community, and we've now run that through to uh, 27 today, which uh, is something that I'm, I'm just particularly proud of and, and I think has been a, a huge asset for our organization. What, and what's the difference there? What's that end user? Yeah. Sorry, you're already yeah, going to go it, into it. Go ahead. <laughs> oh, sure. It's just the, the definition of an end user is that you don't offer cloud-native services. So uh, Google and, and Docker and, and Alibaba all are offering hosting or software, other sorts of things. The New York Times sells newspapers and and Ticketmaster sells tickets, and uh, you know, Wikipedia, Wikimedia Foundation runs Wikipedia, and so that they're it's they're not offering cloud-native services to their gotcha. to their customers. Um, and what's been great is that uh, when companies make big bets on uh, Kubernetes and the surrounding technologies, that the uh, idea of becoming an end user, a member of our end user community is not a particularly big expense. And, and they do see it as pretty valuable both to support our efforts, but also from a communication standpoint, we have a, a monthly private phone call between them, which is kind of a, a vendor free zone and a Slack channel and a mailing list. And then it's, it's uh, also, we, we do in those monthly phone calls, we're, we're connecting them with the project maintainers and giving them that additional insight into kind of what's coming down the line. And so, um, and those project maintainers generally find it pretty interesting to have, uh, you know, a, a thoughtful, um, engaged group of, of potential users. So, so far we've been able to make that um, membership and, and the kind of economic proposition work for um, a lot of companies. It's definitely logistically been a, a, a challenging process to, to bring on. I think we're up to 157 members so far. We do a, a monthly marketing call for them that's gotten bigger and bigger and um, trying to figure out exactly what the set of benefits are that, that companies get because um, they do need to be things like um, we have a two webinars that we do every month and that we heavily promote. And those are only available to members. But but even those webinars are not just an opportunity to sell proprietary product. We'll, we'll more generally get two or three companies together to give more of an overview on something like cloud-native storage or security or um, new, new technologies or such. And so uh, I, I'd say right now, at least, the formula's um, working and we, we've been able to come up with... Um, with a value proposition that makes sense for folks. I mean, 157 members is 
proof, I guess the proof's in the pudding, Adam, that they've definitely convinced a whole lot of companies to, to hop on board. I mean, it's pretty compelling. I mean, if at the top of the chain and as well at the bottom, you got insider news. So you get to be involved in, you know, behind the scenes things that, uh, I don't want to say it's pay for player club like, but it's very club like. You get inside access to things, right? Uh, you even mentioned access to maintainers that maybe you could have that as not a member, but why not? Because hey, you get insider news, you get marketing, and you also get to sustain and or you know maintain the efforts of the projects and the efforts and you know all the things to keep this ecosystem thriving. It, I mean, it it seems pretty compelling. Yeah. And, you know, the, the, the ranges of dollars that we're talking about here. So platinum member, 370,000 USD per year, gold member 120. So those are the big, those are the bigger tiers. But yeah. then once you get down to what Dan's talking about, the silver and user members, um, 5,000, 50,000, 7,000. Yeah, but, but for a small startup with 50 people or less, it's actually just 7,000. Yeah. And so it, it is designed to, to be a reasonable... Um, fee that we're 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 not we're we're working hard not to be onerous for these folks. I mean, so mm-hmm. let's break down maybe some some uh, hypotheticals on the seven thousand dollars in that case there. So if I'm that if I'm you know the CEO of that company, fifty thousand employees or less, and I'm fifty employees, fifty fifty sorry fifty employees, not fifty thousand. Uh, <laughs> I'm that company, and I want to have this you know insider perspective. I want to be uh, involved in these calls and, and this matters that much to me. Um, you know, how does that $7,000 tend to get not so much down to the dime, but how does it tend to get used? Does it actually sustain the projects? Is it, is it, you know, you know, on this show, we cover things like maintainer burnout and, you know, contributor on ramping. What kind of, if I'm coming into this as that kind of company, how are those dollars affecting the, the sustaining efforts of these projects? Sure, they they are in that we're providing a set of services to the maintainers that hopefully make them more successful and more productive. So whether it's setting up uh, press calls or analyst calls or just giving them a subscription to a um, some sort of online service that plugs into GitHub and provides something useful, like CI or documentation or other sorts of things. All of that um, con- contributes to it. Now, from a budget standpoint, you know, the majority of our funding comes from our platinum members. Um, and so we think for the sort of smallest startups out there, the 7K for, for becoming a member is a particularly good deal. And, and I, I guess I will give the quick pitch that uh, we also have a startup sponsorship offer where uh, small startup companies can um, who are members can become uh, get a booth at our event for $5,000. That's that's normally a $20,000 booth, and it comes with five tickets that's worth $5,500 anyway. And so yeah. I, I think a lot of small companies say, hey, $12,000 to sort of dive into this community and demonstrate that, that it's important to us and and – um, but you know that we can kind of treat as a marketing expense is is a pretty reasonable thing to do, and yeah. that that tends to be a a different value proposition from a big company like a, a Bloomberg or a, a bigger bank, or and then certainly from the gold or the platinum members. Cool, Dan. Well, tell us uh, tell us what's new with CNCF. It sounds like everything's been moving pretty quickly. KubeCon uh, next month sounds like it's going to be a huge event, and probably a lot of your efforts are are going into that. But um, what else is new? Do you got any new uh, supporting projects or anything else? 
Well, the, the biggest thing that CNCF probably um, will have done this year, other than running our events, uh, we just announced a couple weeks ago, is the software conformance program that we put together called Certified Kubernetes. And this has been um, over nine months in process and just a, a really intricate, involved um, process on, on how to ensure conformance around uh, Kubernetes, that there's... Um, over uh, so we have uh, 32 different companies signed up at launch, and I think we're up to 37 or 38 now. And um, so these are folks like Google with the Google Kubernetes engine, and Red Hat with OpenShift, and and um, really a every vendor in this space who has a commercial offering. And for all of them, they're um, still completely allowed to make modifications to the software and changes and improvements and patches to it, but it's a way of ensuring that um, each of their versions of, of Kubernetes remains compatible. And so when an application deploys on one version, that it, it will uh, work correctly on others as well. And we're really thrilled that this um, process is something that we worked extremely closely with the Kubernetes project on. Um, it, it actually makes use of the conformance tests that are already built into Kubernetes and the, the kind of technical um, issues that come up of something, it, it, what um, counts as an external API that matters for conformance versus an internal API implementation detail. Those kinds of questions get escalated to the architecture special interest group within Kubernetes. But we were able to just uh, bring together really everybody in this industry. And um, it was a, actually a shockingly non-contentious project for what's really one of the biggest um, software conformance efforts that I'm aware of. Hmm. So it's kind of like a best practices badge, but for Kubernetes, it's like you're doing the, you're uh, an encore presentation of a best practices badge where you're saying, I'm, we're going to conform to this specific like published is it is it like a public api that you're conforming to but then your internals can be different or give us some of the details of what conformance looks like yeah that's exactly the case and so there is an analogy to the the best practices badge where uh there's a test that you take and but the difference is that the certified kubernetes conformance program is completely automated and so as a vendor, you uh, download this open source tool called Sonobuoy and it runs the tests and then puts out a log file and you then submit that log file and some other data uh, in, a, in a pull request. And that's how you, that, um, when that's accepted, you become certified. But one of the um, just really exciting or, or I think innovative aspects of it is that any of your users can come along later and run that ex those exact same tests with the same test harness in order to confirm that your platform or your distribution remains conformant. And so mm -hmm. instead of needing a um, uh, like an official lab that is expensive or slow or, or clunky or such, uh, it, it's almost like a distributed verification process. Interesting. So you're you're guaranteeing portability for the for the end users of these different implementations. Yeah, that's the uh, that's definitely what we're what we're aiming for here. And it's that if you have an application and it um, deploys onto um, you know a given version of Kubernetes, that it should work on any other uh, version as well. There's a lot of concern, you know, out there with with cloud lock-in essentially, and this seems to be uh, counteracting that. 
Oh, I think that's definitely the case. And so, you know, really a, a huge, uh, probably the, the most central message of cloud native is an open source software stack that gives you portability between any public, private, or hybrid cloud. But then furthermore, even after you've chosen Kubernetes and chosen this other software, there's the question of, oh, well, am I locked into my distro or, or this specific platform that I chose? And the, the aspiration of this, this program is that, no, you're not. You should be able to move between any of them and, and pick the company that will provide you the best support and, and, and work with you and, and everything else. The great thing about that for us you know, end users of these clouds is that it forces them to compete on the the strata that we care about the most, which is price, performance, security, uh, tooling. Right? They think that it it forces them to compete there and not on um, other aspects of what they provide, which may just be uh, customization for lock-in sake, for instance. So that's that's great. Sure. Although I think they also yeah do compete on value-added services. Mm-hmm. So uh, you know yes, using their but, database right. or caching or all the other services that they provide right mm-hmm. but our, our goal is that they they wouldn't be competing with um oh we implement this api better than our competitor mm-hmm. and then i i will mention just one other program that we rolled out in september which is um essentially another kind of certification except it's of expertise for consultancies and so this is what we call our kubernetes certified uh service provider and there again, we were able to get um, several dozen, I think it's 23 companies right now, um, as our launch KCSP partners. And so they get a, a special place, placement on the Kubernetes webpage and on our webpage. But it's um, we actually put together an entire curriculum about um, what a Kubernetes expert should know. And uh, these companies have gotten three of their um internal experts to pass an online exam. And what's pretty neat about that exam and also the training that we offer around it is it's not a multiple choice test. We actually spin up nine different clusters over the course of the exam and and have you deploy Kubernetes and demonstrate that you can debug it and and work with it and such. And so it's a very uh, real world kind of experience. Sounds like fun. Well, to, to, to be, uh, I'll, I'll, I'll give you a little uh, uh, dirty detail here, which is for everybody who's passed the exam so far, which is several hundred people, four or 500 people, it, it, the exam on average was turning out to be four hours long, um, mm. which is, is pretty painful. And uh, you <laughs> so know, a lot not of very folks, fun. No. Yeah. But uh, we, we working with our, our psychometrician, we just figured out a way of dropping out some of the questions that did not impact the scores so all of those people would have scored the same anyway in order to cut the exam back to just three hours which uh, um and, and you know hopefully two and a half or three but uh i think we'll make it a much more reasonable experience for uh for folks because we, we we do think that this training that we're offering and the exam along with it is is really a great way to come up to speed on kubernetes um but we, we don't want that to have to be a painful experience so for those that have been tuning in this entire show, kind of getting a glimpse behind the scenes, you know, at your job, at, you know, the role you play each and every day, the importance of this foundation, the projects behind it, the members involved, uh, both end users as well as cloud providers and everyone else in between, you know, uh, I think that probably the best way to lead this would be to to give people some inroads into uh, getting involved or or supporting or 
playing a role, you know, if they want to. One, I'm sure it could be membership. Two, it could be going to the conference. Um, you know, what, what are some other common paths for our listeners, which are developers, people out there that, uh, you know, that want to know more about how a foundation is actually run and the, the support it gives to the projects? What can they do to get involved? What's some good takeaways for them? Yeah, so really the biggest one is um, please go take a look at our projects. That's the area where um, all of our projects are eager to have more contributions, um, more users. And so if you, um, you know, there's this joke that um, sysadmins know uh, Perl and uh, DevOps engineers know Ruby and um, SREs, site reliability engineers know Go. But in particular, if you're a, a um, sysadmin or a, a DevOps engineer, um, this is really a great area to dive into and improve your skills and improve your, your hiring potential and, and help your company um, be able to deploy much faster and you know going from quarterly or monthly deployments to hopefully dozens of deployments per day, so getting a much faster internal velocity. So th that would be definitely my biggest call to action would just be uh, to go look at our projects and hopefully you'll find um, all 14 of them are uh, very welcoming and, and eager to have new users. And then as you see bugs or areas for improvement or, or features that are missing, uh, would love to get your, your contributions on it. Um, a, a few other sort of angles into things are we do have a really great, um, completely free course on edX that um, is an intro to Kubernetes course. And that I, I think is a great way to, to learn about it. And then um, if you sort of like what you see there, you might decide to take our, our more advanced course um, that's a, an intermediate training course and that prepares you for that exam uh, that I mentioned before, if, particularly if you want to uh, start getting immersed into Kubernetes. And then certainly our event, um, KubeCon Cloud Native Con in Austin, December 6th through 8th, is really the, the best way to just kind of drink from a fire hose and um, and see everything that's going on. And, and this year, we have a, a number of 101 sessions. We, we, we sort of have both the green uh, slopes and the, the double black diamond sessions and, and everywhere in between. And then, uh, as I said, we'll be in Copenhagen uh, May 2nd through 4th, which uh, so for our European friends is, is uh, maybe an easier way to dive in. You guys are busy. Busy, busy. Wow. <laughs> I, I had no idea about yep. this uh, this edX course too. I mean, so this is free and it's, it, this is, I'm assuming the course is supported by or funded by or produced by the Linux Foundation? Exactly. So CNCF funds it, but it we have, uh, the Linux Foundation has an internal training team that put it together. Gotcha. And, Interesting. Um, you, you know, it's actually one of the areas that I'm most proud of this year where we have uh, over 14,000 people have signed up for this. And uh, my favorite statistic is it's actually uh, from 141 different countries. So it's been really neat to see that um, to see that adoption and interest around the world. Well, it's uh, currently ranked 3.5 out of 5 on the course. So it's, mm, uh, it's I good. think we should aim better than that. Yeah, let's, let's uh, get to 4. <laughs> We're going to be doing some revisions for it because the, the course is... is uh, was done towards 1.6, but we have a, a new version that'll be hooked into the 1.8 release. And then we're actually going to be doing quarterly updates of these to have them match up with, um, with Kubernetes. Very cool. Well, Dan, thank you so much for the time you've shared with us today and the insights into the role you play specifically, and then the role, the foundation and also the Linux foundation, you know, 
uh, as a parent foundation to to many the role it plays and the importance of it and hopefully you know open source developers out there have gotten a glimpse behind the scenes at what it takes to run a foundation and uh, maybe more importantly the importance of it <laughs> to hit it right on the nose but uh Dan, thank you so much for your time today. We appreciate it. Yeah, and thank you guys for all the work that you do. I, I've been a, a long-time listener, and I really think it is immensely important for help connecting together this uh, diverse and physically distributed group of uh, open-source developers around the world. Absolutely. Yeah, thank you for being a listener. Much appreciated. All right, thank you for tuning into this episode of The Changelog. If you enjoyed the show, you know what to do. Go on Apple Podcasts, go on Overcast, go on Twitter, share it with a friend, rate us, tell everyone you know. This is a great show. We want you to tell your friends about this show who work so hard on this show. And all we want you to do is share it. Just share it. <laughs> uh, thank you to our sponsors, CircleCI, Linode, GitLab, and TopTal. Also, thanks to Fastly, our bandwidth partner. Head to Fastly.com to learn more. We host everything we do on Linode cloud servers at linode.com slash changelog. Check them out. Support this show. This show is hosted by myself, Adam Stachowiak, and Jared Santo. Editing is by Jonathan Youngblood. And the awesome music you hear during the shows is produced by Breakmaster Cylinder. You can find more shows just like this at changelog.com or by going to Apple Podcasts, going to Overcast, and searching for changelog or the changelog or request for commits or go time. And you, you know, changelog.com slash podcast. Find all of our podcasts there, changelog.com slash podcasts. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next week.